With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 73rd episode of my show. You know, I do this show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also do it to provide our worldwide listeners with some practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my now 112,000 plus listeners throughout the world. I really too do appreciate you and I, I thank you for tuning in each month. Now, my March Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of February. Please sign up for them. I've provided them free since 2007, and I do it in an effort to really increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues. But I also provide it to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. And you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. So today, our topic, um, it's something that I've discussed in six other episodes over the past two years. It is increasingly more urgent to address the related security issues involved. And I'm talking about voting and elections security. And boy, talk about timely. We record our show in advance. Now, I'm based in Des Moines, Iowa. So you may have heard through the news uh, recently that we have caucuses here. And I want to tell you, caucuses are not the same as ballot voting but uh, they encompass much more than simply choosing candidates for each political party. And they are done through in-person gatherings with discussion and voting. And it also includes determining party platform topics that the voters in each precinct uh, where we gather want to see included in the general elections discussion of who's going to be the delegates to represent uh, that precinct and the, the party primaries and, and so, so much more. So it's, it's completely different than just a pure vote uh, and leave type of activity. Well, 
Two nights ago, February 3rd, was our Iowa caucuses. Now, the actual process where people within their specific political parties gather and discuss the candidates, platforms, delegates, etc., that was all revamped for this year. And the actual in-person caucusing activity, the in-person part, it actually went smoother for this widely misunderstood and to those who've never caucused before process. Um, It went smoother for the in-person process this time. And if any of you want to know more about caucuses and how they are very different in intent and design than the single purpose voting, send me a message. I've participated in caucuses here in Iowa for over 20 years, but that, that is outside our discussion today. Today, what I want to talk about is, uh, first of all, just this caucusing and and clarify some of the issues and then get to a a huge snafu that happened. So this year, there was an addition of each caucuser having a card. We were each given a card to record our choices, our first choice through the first round of choosing who we would want to represent our precinct and then the second choice. And before this year, it was generally done just by counting hands of those present by the precinct captains and co-captains. Now, this year, the cards created a way to verify the results. We had a hard copy. We could use those cards to um, know the actual numbers and so on. It wasn't written down on the precinct captain's you know, notes. It was actual documentation from each person present. That went generally well, much improved over simple hand counts. However, they also implemented to use for the very first time two nights ago, a new computer application. And that application allowed the voting precinct leaders to send each of the caucus precincts results, three different types of results at three different times throughout the caucusing night, uh, throughout the process to send the results into the centralized states system via a new mobile app. And that way it would combine the over 1,700 in-state and then satellite locations. And those satellite locations were outside of the state of Iowa for Iowans who were temporarily located elsewhere. But it would allow then the results to be determined more quickly. However, as we learned as the night wore on and into the next day and into today, two days later, that application did not work as intended. And my longtime listeners know that given my background as a systems engineer and as being an adjunct professor for master's degree programs about programming securely and so on, I've lectured students and my listeners many times have heard me talk about the need to have well-designed applications and to make sure they are thoroughly tested prior to use in production or in layman's terms before it's actually the live event. You need to make sure they work well. Many of my shows, including a recent one with Becky Swain, discuss this very topic. Well, from what here locally in Des Moines, I'm hearing all sorts of local news reporting throughout the entire time over the past going on three days now 
that new caucus application did not work correctly. No, it was not hacked during the event, according to not only uh, the elections folks, but also according to the applications programmers themselves. It just had applications design flaws, and it sounds like it also had um, some bandwidth limitation issues, uh, and it caused problems because so many people were using the app to report the results at the same time, coming from the you know close to 2,000 precincts all all at once, um, that 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 caused a problem with bandwidth, caused a problem in the application because some of the the numbers did not align with the precinct leaders' numbers. The good thing is that because we had the physical cards to verify the caucus goers' choices, it is being reported and several times here locally that those are now being manually recounted and totaled statewide to determine the results to make sure that that is all accurate. However, the really bad and really embarrassing for Iowa problem is that now it's two days after we still don't know all of the caucus results. There's been 75% as of right now. And I've counted over 100 different filled with a wide range of incorrect information news reports throughout the U.S. and other countries about this situation. And, you know, it's really interesting because some of them have ridiculous conspiracy theories about why the caucus results are not yet known. Uh, and social media is being used to further rumors and conspiracy theories. And or there's other types of guesses about what went wrong. That's just, you know, this application's engineering and implementation error for this caucusing type of new elections application system, you know, it's creating all sorts of fodder for those who want to disrupt our elections too, perhaps. You know, who knows? They may be able to use this situation uh, to manipulate the rest of the election in unexpected ways. And this technical logic flaw it could be an unexpected gift to those who, who maybe want to use it to damage our entire elections process. And so this demonstrates just one of the many things uh, that can go wrong with elections. And it's seemingly because of maybe some design and implementation flaws or other considerations. You know, there are people who are indeed actively trying to hack registered voters, registration databases, and voting systems themselves. Um, and there are people, we can see it online, right, that are trying to manipulate the results. We are long overdue for putting much more attention towards improving our elections and voting systems. And I have the perfect person to speak with today about this. Teresa Payton is one of the nation's leading experts in cybersecurity and IT strategy. Teresa is CEO of Fortalis Solutions. It's an industry-leading security consulting company. Now, Teresa served as the first female chief information officer at the White House, 
overseeing the IT operations for President George W. Bush and his staff. And Teresa has also written several books and has a new one coming out on April 1st entitled Manipulated Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections and Distort the Truth. You can see more about Teresa on my Voice America show site. Teresa, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm so glad we're finally getting an opportunity to talk. Yes, I've been wanting to talk with you for so long, and now we have this very timely topic. So, you know, let's start with the Iowa caucuses situation. As as I mentioned, two days later, we know 75% of the precincts, and, you know, it's probably because their hand calculating, tabulating all those cards now instead of trying to decide upon the tech. But with regard to related security and manipulated, um, you know, manipulations that could occur through this event, what do you think the possible impacts are just from this caucus? And what are your thoughts about it? I mean, I'm incredibly disappointed at what happened in Iowa and and not to point the finger um, because as you know Rebecca when a technology implementation rolls out and goes very badly um, it's not the technology team necessarily like there's a lot of shared blame to go around Um, but what's disappointing and distressing to me is we already knew well before the Iowa caucuses Um, that we have people in our country who their public confidence in election results are already shaky, right? They've been Mm -hmm. shaken by a variety of different things. Uh, The manipulation campaigns in the 2016 election, they hear other global elections um, have had social media campaigns. Um, in addition to that, you know, there's oftentimes the Iowa caucus in 2016 was front mm-hmm. and center where people said, you know, did we pick the right Democratic candidate and was the caucus rigged? And so you already have a chink in the armor as far as people believing that our election processes are open and fair and that Mm-hmm. Their vote matters. And so it's very, very distressing to me that they forged ahead um, with an untested and unproven system. And not only that, but a big technology rollout like this. Like when, when we would do things like this at the White House, when I worked in banking, and this is something we recommend to all our clients today, when you do a big technology rollout, first of all, make sure you put it through the security paces. What Mm -hmm. we are hearing is that Shadow did not take DHS's division called CISA up on their offer that they've made to every state and everybody involved in the election ecosystem to provide free consultative services, testing, review, and it can be confidential. And they basically said, well, we were working in stealth mode, so we we, we didn't uh, involve them in this process. I mean, I just find that incredible. So you're supposed to Mm -hmm. go through the security pieces. You're supposed to go out in the field. You know, when I did a big technology implementation, a minimum of a week before rollout for the White House, I would go out into the field with a team, and we would do mock usage of the technology. A mock caucus should have happened. And you put Mm -hmm. everybody through, you know, once you know on the technology side, 
okay, I know what the glitches are. I know the workarounds for the glitches. You then refine your training. Then you bring the users in well before Mm -hmm. the actual day, and you walk them through the paces. You walk them through the training. And then when it's time for go live, what do you do? You station with them in the field engineers. So when those glitches happen, and they're going to have no patience for it, you can have your own genius standing there saying, you know what it is? You're on an older version of a Chrome browser. It's this particular phone, mm-hmm. or let's power your phone down. Let's try again. And all those things that people in tech know um, to troubleshoot and support, but somebody who's trying to run a caucus, um, they're just not going to have the patience of the time for. So all of that to say, this really opens us up to ongoing manipulation and misinformation campaigns. I am Mm -hmm. certain that Internet memes will be built off of the Iowa uh, debacle. I am certain that Internet trolls from nation states, as well as activists with a cause here in the United States, will not miss an opportunity to completely bash the process. And when they do Mm -hmm. that, if they disenfranchise you and me from voting in the next primary or the next caucus, or even going to the polls on Election Day, they won. If Mm -hmm. they convinced me to vote a different way, they won. And we just can't let that happen. So unfortunately, this is not a great way to start the election season. Oh, I I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, you know, and what was sad was it started out so good. I mean, in my precinct, we had actually close to 470 uh, caucusers, people. So they're all neighbors. It's people in the neighborhood, right? So a lot of us knew each other, if not by name, by by face. Um, and then we had 150 or so people who were there with them sitting in the bleachers just watching. And then 10 uh, news organizations from around the world who were recording it. But, you know, it started good. Everybody, I talked about those cards that we use to begin with to write it down people love those they were like oh i'm so glad that instead of just hoping that the volunteers who are the precinct captains captains and workers we're so glad that we actually have cards that we've signed our names to and have our address so that can be verified that you know we know who we wanted to support so it started out good but i had this feeling in my gut teresa when it was going along, when it took a while after they were supposed to send the first results in of the three different times, because I, it was taking longer than it should. And I kind of went up to, you know, the precinct captain and I just, uh, everybody's friendly at these caucuses. Uh, and, and I just said, well, how's it going? He's like, you know, it's just, ta- I can't get connected in through the app. And right there, I just had this feeling in my gut. It's like, oh no. <laughs> and so I said, I said, well, how did they, you know, how much training did you get on this? And he said, well, they didn't give us any formal training. And right there I knew it's like, holy cow, this is not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not good. So, you know, beyond the caucus, then we know, we know that people are trying to interfere with our elections. And, you know, what we hear about a lot, of course, since 2016 is a nation state interference. So, you know, so many people say, oh, that's not, you know, that's not really happening. That's a hoax or whatever. But, you know, in what ways, can you explain to our listeners, in what ways have nation state interference been going on 
perhaps for many years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And, um, you know, I talk about it in, in the book that's coming out. But I, what I try to do is really, you know, I'm, so people may or may not know this, but I'm from a long line of U.S. military and law enforcement, um, not just the men in the family, but also women in the family. And so, you know, b- because that's what our family does, that's kind of our family business, if you will, um, I'm a, a real student of ongoing kind of military tactics and history, no expert by any means, but I find it fascinating. So I actually, what's interesting is these manipulation campaigns, I started going back to see how far back I could find a manipulation campaign even prior to, you know, the, the Internet being as ubiquitous as today. And really, I... I'm pretty sure since there were two human beings walking the earth, that's when the manipulation campaign started. Um, <laughs> but it's a ground game that evolved over centuries where uh, nations would, you know, use these manipulation and amplification campaigns to track not only their enemies and try to mm-hmm. control their enemies, their friends, but also their own citizens, right? And so propaganda, Mm -hmm. for example, um, state-run newspapers, state-run radio programs, um, you know, things that we find odd today in a country like America that do exist in some countries, but it was the norm uh, centuries ago. And so now, kind of fast forward to the Internet and, you know, uh, the manipulation campaigns, are really an evolving ground game. So we we all know that the Russians have had, you know, since uh, kind of like the pre-Cold War, post-Cold War, and who knows, are we going back to a Cold War? We're not really sure. Um, but uh, we all know that they had a tremendous ground game where they had, you know, people who were trained, uh, placed in America, placed in other countries. But that ground game, it's really hard to know whether or not you're successful in promoting communist and Russian propaganda, you, and it's very expensive, and you run the risk of what? Being caught. <laughs> because mm-hmm. the Russian spies that are embedded among us, they have to go to work, they have to do things, and they could slip up or they could get caught doing what they're doing. And so the manipulation and misinformation campaigns actually take what they want to accomplish uh, for the nation states who engage in them to a whole nother level at scale, at speed, uh, low cost, and they know immediately whether or not they're resonating on the, on the Internet because they actually see the likes and the posts and the sharing and the reactions and the, you know, the sad face and the smiley face and the hearts. So they get to see in real time what messages resonate, which ones don't, and they have a highly sophisticated and automated process, they actually have us sliced and diced into different demographic segments on a level that a third-party marketing firm would salivate at. Mm. Oh, yes. Well, Twitter, you know, all of the different tools that can be used to, you know, retweet and so on, it seems like a lot of times what seems like ridiculous things that are are tweeted out there are retweeted by celebrities or by politicians, you know, well-known people. And then that just spreads it even more. And, uh, on Facebook too. Um, it really so, does. It, it really does. 
So are you seeing anything new like in the last year? I mean, we've seen a lot. We, we know what was happening up to 2016, 2018. Are you seeing emerging manipulation methods going on now? Oh, absolutely. Um, and what's interesting, and, and I warned about this, um, you know, leading into the 2016 um, elections, um, my team and I were observing different nation states. Um, you know, one of their tactics is they see a trending hashtag and they jump mm-hmm. on the bandwagon. Um, mm. And I think that the other thing that, that's been interesting um, in my findings around this and, and where it's really evolved to for 2019, 2020, and beyond is if they can jump on the bandwagon of popular hashtags, and as you know, you know, today's popular hashtag is not tomorrow's popular hashtag, right? And so they, mm-hmm. they kind of surf the web across the different platforms looking for those hashtags. The next thing that they do is they actually have built sophisticated um, armies of bots that they know the social media companies are constantly looking for them to shut them down. So they're constantly fine-tuning these bots so that they, you know, they're not... Um, Tweeting, 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 and you know it's like okay, we know we know that the POTUS account might tweet a lot, but we know most people don't, you know, kind of tweet at that same rate, right? So there's mm-hmm. there's like power users of social media across the globe that that we all know can tweet a lot when they're like in the moment of something they want to say, but mm-hmm. as a rule, not all users of Twitter and other social media platforms tend to kind of have that, um, you know, kind of just sort of this stream of ongoing short bursts of posts. And so Mm -hmm. the social media platforms are getting smarter at shutting things like that down. And so these nation states and manipulation syndicates, they know that. So they're always testing these different bots. And then they use it to actually argue for and against something. Mm -hmm. And the other learning that I had in doing this research was I used to think that it was either to make you and I upset at each other so we wouldn't even talk to each other anymore, so to shut down. You know, what's so great about democracies is, like, we can agree to disagree, and, like, we can, like, argue our points of the issues and be incredibly excited, maybe even agitated about it, and then go have a beer. Like, that's the beauty of America. So I thought, well, part of this was to rip us apart so we don't talk, to get us to not believe and maybe even be picking winners and losers. Yes. You know what? If that happens, that's not the primary reason anymore. Yeah. This yeah. is so incredible. Yeah. But they make um, a ton of money. So yeah. not only, yeah, yeah. this is very interesting. So the old ground game, super expensive, super long, don't know if it works. If yeah. they take a ground um, game, and they still have the ground game going because there's, there's a vested interest in having – you know, spies embedded everywhere, um, doing different things. But if they move to this social media game, they actually make money. And so it's the craziest thing. Like one of the things I uncovered was... Hold on, before you start talking about about this, one one of the um, operatives that I talked to um, in sort of this kind of this bombshell interview, he ended up reaching out to a group, a nation-state group of hackers that he found. And he said to them, hey, guys, how come I see your, 
you're sort of always posting like anti-Hillary, but pro-Trump and pro-Bernie. And what's that all about? And they said, oh, it makes us a ton of money. And they said, we actually did a lot of testing. And if we did pro-Hillary and anti-Trump, it didn't make us as much money. If we did pro-Trump just by himself, it didn't make us as much money. And so we tested it. And if we spend most of the day actually posting pro-Bernie and pro-Trump, that's where we make the most money. It's all about the money. Yeah. I mean, can you believe yes. that? I, and so oh, that's it's, actually, it's crazy. for some of these groups, a yeah. primary I, I hate, focus. I hate to interrupt you, but we have a hard break that we need to, to go to right now for the sponsors. Uh, sure. But we'll come back, and I want to continue this uh, right after we get back. So right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Teresa Payton about elections and voting security. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Be sure to like the Voice America Business Channel on Facebook. You'll find out about up-to-the-minute business happenings and get ideas from entrepreneurs and business professionals. Search Voice America Business or click the like button under the player and stay ahead of the curve. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Teresa Payton, and we, we've been having a great discussion about voting and election security. So, Teresa, before we had the break, you were talking about the actual um, financial benefits of trying to manipulate our elections. So I thought I, you know, if you wanted to finish that thought about how 
people are making money off of doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible to me how much these manipulation syndicates actually make. And, you know, again, it was one of those things. I, I went into the research for my book and also in our line of work because we, we do a lot of incident response forensics and intellectual property theft is kind of a big problem, and it's usually nation states who are going after that. So you kind of get to know the profiles of these different cybercriminal syndicates, individual actors, and then these nation states. And so in my mind, when I started working on this book, I thought the reason why the manipulators do what they do, it's to make sure we don't like each other. It's to tell you how to vote, picking winners and losers, or maybe get you to stay home. Um, it's to get you to distrust democracy. And I really thought those were their primary reasons. But what I realize now, no, it's, that's, like, that's great if that happens, but a primary goal is they make a ton of money. And so if you think about the actions that you take on social media, and I'll give you an example. Um, mm-hmm. So if you see something floating around in your news feed or perhaps on your friend's wall or somebody tags you or maybe it's in some of your private messaging groups and, mm-hmm. you know, like one tactic they use, we call it clickbait, um, and some people think of that as an advertising strategy or, you know, viral marketing strategy, the manipulators are great at this. So they'll have, like, you won't believe, you know, what Hillary Clinton did or you won't believe where Macron is funded. You won't believe where somebody hides their bank accounts. And then you'll see a, a small thumbnail picture. And when you click on that and you go to the story, the story may or may not be legit. But mm-hmm. when you clicked on that, you actually put pennies per click in the manipulator's pocketbook to then manipulate you again. And that, that's the part. Because people are like, well, how do they make money? I don't understand that. And it's basically taking both true and legitimate news sources, but also standing up what looks legitimate, but it's Mm -hmm. not really legitimate, news sites, and then taking true stories and then taking true with like a twisted truth or a little bit of an added or a refresh, and then creating sort of this sensational headline and or picture to get you and I to click. And Mm -hmm. that's how you fund the revenue stream for the manipulation campaigns. And it just kind of, it's crazy. The manipulators, even if they're nation states for communist countries, they're actually mm-hmm. capitalists. Yeah. Well, so, wow, that's really interesting. So the people actually technically doing these, uh, these manipulation campaigns, they don't care probably then who's paying them the money as long as, you know, they're making the money. So they might be working for maybe Russia or maybe a specific group in the U.S. even or whatever. They might, The same group might be doing manipu- multiple manipulation campaigns and they might, <laughs> they might be putting out completely opposite types of information, but they don't care because they're making a ton of money off of it. Exactly. Yeah, and... And what I've seen, too, evolve is, you know, everybody has had the opportunity to read the publicly provided redacted version of the Mueller report. Um, most people don't have time to read it. I read it several times um, and mm-hmm. doing research for the book and trying to 
you know, kind of cross-foot my findings with what the FBI did and did not report in the publicly available um, report and, you know, just trying to make sure I was doing my fact-checking. But my biggest concern was that the blueprint for how to conduct a manipulation campaign was basically provided as a how-to guide. I mean, just short of having the step-by-step YouTube video, um, mm-hmm. you can basically sit there and say, okay, if I wanted to, you know, if I feel very passionate about candidate ABC mm-hmm. and I want to make sure they're the one who gets elected, I'll take it upon myself to do these different tactics and techniques to make the other candidates look bad. Um, Mm -hmm. At the same time, maybe you set up your own little PAC and your own little political action group, and then you're funding it by funding these amplification and clickbait uh, types of campaigns. And it's, to me, the blueprint's out. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Russians created the platinum standard, but we're actually seeing North Korea get in the game, and it used to be they were using it to influence their own citizens. They're going well beyond that. Iran is definitely uh, trying to be a much more of a major player in the manipulation campaigns. Uh, You see where um, even countries like, uh, you know, kind of China has uh, gone into the manipulation game. Um, It's interesting to see, you know, how with the coronavirus, uh, I think we will find as time goes on, uh, that some of the, you know, kind of the state-run media um, in trying to kind of control panic and control the message uh, that manipulation campaigns before and against, um, you know, with China, but then others, you know, trying to kind of stoke issues and manipulation campaigns around, no, it's really worse than you think. All of that is going on right in front of our eyes every day, and it's just so hard to discern What's just an honest person who is interested in something posting it? And Mm -hmm. what's a bot whose sole purpose is either that revenue generation or to manipulate me in how I feel and how I act? Mm -hmm. Well, so, yeah, I mean, you and I, we would know what to look at if we were looking at the technical logs and stuff, certainly. But for all of our listeners and for the, the typical person in the general public, if if these manipulators are following like a blueprint, then I anticipate are there some some types of indicators that maybe the just the the general person in public, if they saw something in a message, I mean, what would be some red flags that people should recognize? Uh, for those yeah, types this of messages. Is interesting because um, so while I was working on the research for the book um, a mm-hmm. year ago, I actually contacted my uh, son's high school and I asked mm-hmm. if I could come in and talk to the AP and honors history and English classes to go over these manipulation concepts because mm-hmm. I really felt like you know social media was really going to grab this generation and for decades to come shape how this generation thinks about global socioeconomic political issues. And they agreed. So I went in and I actually talked to them about these campaigns. And then I actually um, went over how to spot messages on social media and like how to pinpoint 
accounts that may not be the actual person and maybe fake personas as part of a campaign. And they did a pretty okay job in a very short period of time. It's not like I taught a class, like I had an Mm -hmm. hour with each class. And what was interesting is where they really tripped up, Rebecca, and this is crazy, um, where they really tripped up was memes. So this generation believes that a meme is an authentic expression and opinion of the person who made it. So therefore, it's not that it's true or untrue, it's your belief. And if it's entertaining Mm. as well, or it fits a confirmation bias, they could not discern a manipulation campaign versus something that was true. And it Mm. was it was actually shocking to me because I went in with like a, you know, I bet you uh, like once I get show them and they get the hang of it, like they'll get this. No, mm-hmm. they didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, they were getting it wrong and they were like, you're kidding me. And I was like, nope, this was created by Russian Internet trolls. <laughs> and I was like, that is not true. I mean, it was just fascinating to me. Um, yeah. so, so what can people listening, what can you do? So some of the red flags, you know, I mm-hmm. mentioned – you know, internet memes are definitely something to watch out for. But there's a there's a couple other things as well. So anything that says we're the first to report this, or here's something that the media wouldn't want you to know, anything mm. with a sensationalistic headline, it may still be true, but it's probably been designed to be part of a manipulation campaign. Also, check your sources. If it is not kind of one of the household trusted names, again, it doesn't mean it's not valid. It doesn't mean it's not a good news source. But it could mean that it is an upstart news agency, and they may not have the staff to vet things in real time like traditional news sources do. And hiding in plain sight, are the nation states who are setting up what looks like legitimate upstart news organizations, mm-hmm. and they're not. They're, they're upstarts, but they're, they're fake personas, and it's a facade to give them the semblance of looking legit. The other thing is search engine optimization. Um, mm. When I taught the students, I said to them, so when you're doing fact-checking, what do you do? And they said the natural thing most people would. They'd say, Well, I type it into my favorite search engine. For most of them, it was Google. And if it comes up on page one, then it must be true. Wrong. Manipulation campaigns, in order to stay viable, to get a reaction out of you, and to make money, they know they have to be on page one. So they Mm -hmm. actually manipulate search engine optimization to make sure they stay on that first page. Um, The other place is if something's being traded a lot, in those private social media groups, Snapchat is actually a very popular domain now for nation mm-hmm. states because they get in there, it just takes one person, and then they create a group with some people in it, and then they start trading in this manipulation uh, campaign, and people take them up on it, and then it leaves the group and it goes viral. Popular hashtags, lots of manipulation campaigns are hiding in plain sight within popular hashtags. Uh, one of the favorite ones of the Russian Internet trolls was actually hashtag MAGA, and they still use it today. Um, and then, you know, kind of lastly, just because somebody has a lot of followers 
doesn't mean they're not a fake persona or a bot. They could have actually purchased mm-hmm. followers. Um, so mm-hmm. that can also be a way to be looking for um, the challenges. The, the other thing is, is make sure you report it. So if you see on Facebook, if you see on Twitter or any of your popular social media, something that doesn't sound right to you, you need to report it. And I'm, you know, I really hold Silicon Valley accountable here. They need mm-hmm. to make it streamlined and easy for each of us to report something that looks suspicious and for them to have a process to review it. Right now, they're hiding behind freedom of speech. and. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree. I don't want somebody who doesn't like something I say to shut me down, but there has to be a better way to, Mm -hmm. and I know algorithms could be built, but understand Mm -hmm. the more you and I argue online, the more money social media platforms make. Ah, yes. Very good point. And, you know, that explains a lot about probably, I'm sure you saw the recent statement from Mark Zuckerberg, too, about how, well, you know, I'm not going to really stop uh, legitimate people from posting lies out there because that would be a, you know, a freedom of speech issue. So if they're reporting lies, you know, we're not necessarily going to, to remove it, even if it's fantastic, fantastical. Well, that, I mean, that point of view, that, that makes sense when you talk about the fact that, that would, uh, you know, if he took those down, there would be less talking on social media, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, it it's, definitely. It's interesting because their model was built to be hyper-connecting people at speed. Mm-hmm. They then capitalized on that model by creating, you know, a place for people to place ads. And what makes an ad more valuable it's the amount of people using the platform and the amount of interaction on the mm-hmm. platform. And so it's actually counter-revenue to say, I'm going to add more staff to look for this stuff. And mm-hmm. when I see fake accounts and fake bots and fake news and, and fake information and fake conversations, I'm going to just going to shut it all down. It's counter-revenue. And, yeah. and so it's very, they're in a real conundrum at this point because the business model they were founded on is exactly the model that the manipulators know even better than the social media companies do, and they take full advantage of it. Oh, yes. Well, you know, I could go on. I I would love to continue talking about this, but before we get to the end, I want to talk about the the paper versus the digital voting because uh, and and I'm going to encourage the folks. You probably talk at length in your book about the manipulation campaigns, correct? Yes. So, yeah. so folks listening, um, when Teresa's book comes out, you can get it and uh, check out more on the manipulation because I just find that whole thing fascinating. But I did want to talk with you about you know the digital voting, the paper ballots, uh, and so on. And as you know, I mentioned before, the people at the caucus site and caucusing is not the same as ballots, but still they loved knowing that they physically had it recorded on something solid that they could hold in their hands. So that's one aspect. But what what are you your views on digital voting versus paper ballots or a combination of the two? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, I think, you know, when I look at our election ecosystem, it, it's fragile. Um, and we're at a real 
point here in America where we really have to take the noise out of the system. And a lot of good work has been done since 2016. I know Department of Homeland Security, and this is tough because states, right, states run elections. But Mm -hmm. every four years, part of the state election involves the presidential election, right? And so, but DHS, you know, has a division fully dedicated to actually traveling to the states, visiting them, giving best practices, giving them proactive warnings on threat intelligence that they are seeing. I'm also seeing private sector companies step up and say, this isn't about revenue, this is about democracy. Microsoft has a whole free toolkit um, that they're offering for, you know, state election boards. But, you know, Mm -hmm. what's interesting about kind of the challenges that we're having, I mean, so people may remember this or not in the midterms, right? So in September 2018, the state of Washington has a web page where you can go and you can vote to register. You can update your personal information. You can get your voter guide. And basically, the way the website's development code was set up, anybody could have accessed any of the information. Um, Nobody knows for sure if anything, if there was a true data security breach, but it was vulnerable. Um, You know, the same thing, like a, a Virginia contractor in 2017 stored voter data in the cloud, didn't configure the access correctly, and so the personal information of about 200 million U.S. voters was sitting on the cloud. Um, So, like, now let's go to the voting process, right? So the paper ballots, um, those can be audited and checked, and paper ballots can be helpful. Um, People need to remember, why did we rush away from paper ballots? That would have been the Gore-Bush election. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and the dangling chads. And so there was this huge rush to, we need to digitize uh, what we're doing. Um, and again, I'll just go back to, you know, my great state of North Carolina where I live. In the 2018 election cycle, um, the big investigation into an election, and we actually had to have a new election for one of our seats, was because of paper-based absentee ballots. So so where do we go from here? Because what I just said was pretty depressing, but it is recoverable. <laughs> um, and so to me, I think what we have to do is really say, what is the process, state by state, district by district, when, when voters want to go to the website, when they want to register, what's the primary process? And when that's not working, what's the secondary process? Mm. Same thing, when they go to the polls. What's the process if they show up and they say, hey, I'm supposed to vote here, and you say, I don't see you on my Mm -hmm. database? What happens? Do you just tell them Mm -hmm. to leave and then they don't vote? Or do you have a backup process? And all of those things really need to be put into place. These playbooks, you know, the playbook that was missing clearly from the Iowa caucus, those Mm -hmm. need to be developed for election days. And again, mock elections, mock Mm -hmm. digital disasters, and actually practicing who calls who and how does that work and how does support work and what do we tell the voter and what's our media plan when things Mm -hmm. are going wrong so it doesn't spin out of control and now the message is managing us and we're not managing the message. So all of those things need to be accounted for and the time to do it is really 
in between presidential election cycles because it's a much smaller population of people coming to vote. Um, and so that's the time to test and trial improved processes and improved technologies. I would highly recommend um, that new technologies, if you're going to pilot them, uh, that you do them in very small districts or you do them in sort of these non-presidential election cycles because there's just too much at stake. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, there, there's so much to talk about with elections and, um, uh, you know, voting. Uh, so, you know, in the, in the final part of our show, tell us a little bit about your book uh, that's coming out. We have about four minutes left here in the show. I, I anticipate they cover these topics. Do they cover other topics beyond that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, so just, just a couple of things about about the book. Um, so I, I do cover, you know, sort of start with, like, how do manipulation campaigns, how did they evolve over time, but very quickly get into what are the motives and targets, um, the manipulators and their methods. Um, I actually have a chapter on I don't teach you how to hack an election because that's not what this book is about. I'm not going to teach people how to do that. But I do talk about the tools and techniques so you understand when the hacker is sitting at the keyboard, what are they thinking and what are they doing, but it's not a really a how-to guide. Um, I have a very explosive interview uh, with a hacker who I just refer to him as Hacker X. Um, the book is designed, if you wanted to jump around, you can, so that might be a chapter you'd want to start with. I go mm -hmm. global, so I talk about all the different um, manipulation campaigns hitting multiple countries around the world, so it's a global book. And then I um, basically go through kind of what can you do. Each chapter actually opens up with a fictional, fictional vignette, so mm -hmm. I've got this, like, crazy creative side in my mind of like mm -hmm. what's the worst case scenario so I actually write a fictional story of like what could happen um, so I try to do that to make sure that you know it's kind of interesting and, and has you know kind of a little bit of a flair to it and, and not too much doom and gloom but um, you know but really for me you know kind of everything that I've experienced over my career um, has really shaped how I look at how important this, this book is and this topic is. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm skeptical of everything now. Um, mm -hmm. I, like, study these manipulators, um, their social and political motives. Um, and the thing is, is I, I really want people to take away from this. They're trying to divide us because the majority of the manipulators hate democracy. They hate the idea that power is held by the people instead of a concentrated few. And mm. so for me, my focus is making sure in a story-like way, I help people understand that your confirmation bias is oftentimes your worst enemy. Um, and in my mind, actually, I feel like as far as like, a, you know, the books that I co-authored with Ted Claypool is a wonderful uh, privacy and cybersecurity lawyer. This is to me one of the most important pieces of work that I've done, and I'm, I'm, I've been praying and hoping that I got it right because <laughs> I, I really want this to be a guidebook and a wake-up call because we can't wait for the government to fix this, and Silicon Valley yeah. certainly is not going to be able to fix it anytime soon. 
So, Rebecca, it's up to you and me and everybody listening and and all of our connections to take matters into our own hands and to see the campaign, warn others, and shut them down ourselves. Yes. Well, thank you so much for for telling us about that, Teresa. And believe it or not, our time is already over. But I, I enjoyed speaking with you so much about this. So thank you for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me on. The time went by so fast. You're a wonderful host and, um, and you're a great colleague. And um, I'm so glad you chose this as a profession. And thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. Thank you. So today I've been speaking with Teresa Payton, CEO of Fortalis Solutions and the author of the upcoming book, Manipulated Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections and Distort the Truth. It's coming out April 1st, and I know I'm looking forward to getting it. It, it just sounds so fascinating. Please send feedback. Oh, thank about thank you. That. Yeah, I am. I'm looking forward to getting it. I hope you'll sign it too. <laughs> Hopefully, I can. <laughs> Great. So, uh, so everyone listening, please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Just let me know. Um, you can reach me at Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHarold.com. And if you cannot hear our scheduled live time, which is actually just the first time that it's aired on the first Saturday of each month, of course, you'll be able to listen to the recordings and you can find all of the recordings of all my past shows on iTunes uh, and Mobile Play, TuneIn and so on. And also, of course, on the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. So I urge all of you to notice and stay aware of all of the information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work. And, you know, don't be afraid to ask the people who ask for your information. How are you going to protect it if I give it to you? Until next time, uh, be privacy aware and uh, stay aware. Be safe. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.